Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show about the texture and vibe of this amazing city. On most programs, Rediscovering New York focuses on New York neighborhoods. We explore their history and their current energy, and we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, artists, and neighborhood personalities. Sometimes, like on this evening's show, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In the past, we've covered topics like a history of U.S. presidents who came or who lived in New York. And by the way, you can get all these on podcast. The history of the women's suffrage movement in the city and in Brooklyn in particular. We've looked at the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York. We had special episodes during Stonewall 50 about the city's LGBT history. We've also explored the history of bicycles and cycling. And I even had a show on the history of punk in New York one of the musical genres I hold dear to my heart. Another one is tonight. Uh, and speaking of musical genres, this week's show is about opera in New York, its history, and some of its current magic. And we have some special guests for tonight. Uh, after the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight's show, we're going to break down into two segments. The first is going to talk about the history of opera in New York, and for the second part of the show, we're going to be speaking with the director of an opera company that many of you have not heard of, but that really brings opera to life in a very fun way. Our first segment uh, about the history of opera, we have two guests, Michael Capasso of the New York City Opera and Greg Trapiano. Greg Trupiano. Greg is with Sarasota Opera, as well as a couple of other things he does, which I'll talk about. Michael Capasso has produced, directed, and toured opera and musical theater productions in the U.S. and abroad for f- over 40 years. He began his career producing and directing while still in his late teens, wow, in early 20s. In 1981, he, along with Diane Martindale, founded New York's DeCapo Opera Theater. Michael has been general director of the New York City Opera since January of 2016. Two years before that, in 2014, along with philanthropist Roy Niederhofer, he led the successful effort to bring the New York City Opera out of bankruptcy, laying the artistic, administrative, and fiscal groundwork for the company's return to production. Under his leadership, the revitalized City Opera ended a long hiatus and took to the stage in January 2016 with the celebratory production of Tosca. Once again, on solid financial footing, the company has completed its 2018-19 season of six fully staged productions, concerts, and special events. During Michael's tenure, the City Opera has consistently lauded, has been lauded for innovative, eclectic programming and outstanding casting. Under his leadership, the company has mounted many landmark productions. A little bit more of his history, in addition to his work with the DeCapo Opera Theater, Michael has directed operas at La Opera de Montréal, Mallorca Opera in Spain, Toledo Opera, Connecticut Opera, the New Jersey State Opera, Opera Carolina, and Orlando Opera, among others. Michael founded the National Lyric Opera in 1991, a touring company that has brought fully staged operas to communities in the North American, I'm sorry, in the American Northeast that would otherwise not have the opportunity to experience live opera. And that itself is God's work, let me tell you. Uh, Our second guest for the first segment of Rediscovering New York tonight is Greg Truppiano, who's a native of Brooklyn, where I'm a native from also. Greg is the founder and artistic director of the Walt Whitman Project. It's a Brooklyn-based community arts organization that started in 2000. It's devoted to exploring the life and influence of a great American writer through readings of his poetry and prose and performances of musical compositions based on his text. His texts, sorry. Past events of the Walt Whitman Project have been produced in cooperation with American Opera Projects, Fort Greene Park Conservancy, Brooklyn Historical Society, the Hudson Guild Theater Company, the Whitney Museum, Museum of the City of New York, Building 92 at the Navy Yard, that's the Brooklyn Navy Yard, the Gay Gotham Chorus, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and with young poet writer mentor Angeli Raspberry. It was Angeli Raspberry, did I? Angeli Raspberry, sorry about that. Other past partners include St. Francis College, Pace University in Lower Manhattan, the Macon, Brooklyn Heights, and Central Branch of the Brooklyn Public Library, and the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. With all this Walt Whitman-related content, some of our listeners may be asking, what does this have to do with opera? Well, aside from being passionate about the art form, Greg is also Director of Artistic Administration at Sarasota Opera in Florida and spends half of each year in Sarasota working with the company 
and he's also expert in the famed history of the development of opera in New York, which is our main subject tonight. And speaking of the Sarasota Opera, Greg doesn't run the company without help. Lon Black is the project's artistic associate. Greg and Michael, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Greg is a returning guest, by the way, uh, and will likely be uh, on future shows, too. Uh, gentlemen, before we get started on the history of opera in New York, since this is a show about New York, um, my guests are always intrigued by how people got here if they weren't from here originally. Michael, are you from New York originally? Yeah, I was raised on Long Island. That's New York. That's as yeah. New York as you get to. <laughs> Greg, how about you? I was born in Brooklyn. Ah, that's dear to my heart. <laughs> Michael, how did you get into working in the world of opera? Um... I come from an Italian family that was constantly listening to Neapolitan music and never opera. And yet when I asked who was the best Italian singer, the answer was Enrico Caruso. And I said, well, why aren't we listening to Caruso? And the answer was, well, because his recordings are difficult to listen to. So I got a book about Caruso by Francis Robinson called Caruso's Life in Pictures. And I was um, seven years old and fascinated by the pictures of this man in these costumes. And I then saw Mario Lanza's The Great Caruso film, and I asked to be taken to the opera. And I went, and, uh, and I never looked back. Wow. And both of them, uh, Lanza and Caruso, died far too young. Yeah, Caruso at 48, Lanza at 38. Wow. wow. Greg, I have to call your career a renaissance career. Uh, it takes you to it took you to at least two places: history, especially Brooklyn history, and also opera. How did you come to be artistic uh, director of artistic production at the Sarasota Opera? I don't sing, so I have to do something in <laughs> opera. If I life would have been very different, like Michael, if if I if I sang, I never had that gift, so I went into administration. Ah. Well, uh, as long as you love something, you can be part of it. You know, I suppose like I am about New York. Uh, I don't uh, uh, I help sell it, but also bring it to people through these programs. That brings us to opera in New York. Um, opera, and also in its older form, its oldest form, has been around almost longer than New York was settled by the Dutch back in the 1620s. When would the city's residents have been able to see their first opera here? Well, let, uh, I'm going to start off with uh, some information on that. Uh, for our purposes, let's say it was 1825. What do I mean for our purposes? There were opera performances in New York before 1825, but much of it was in translation, or it was of a particular type of opera called English ballad opera, something like um, the Beggar's Opera. They, they were popular. But when we're talking Italian opera, sung in Italian, we have to go to 1825. And in 1825, at the Park Theater. Now, the Park Theater stood where J&R Records used to be. Remember that? On 4th Street. On, 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 on um, Park Row. Oh, on Park Row. Oh, wow. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, you know, uh, directly across the street from City Hall. So that was... And then it became Century 21 after J&R Records. Yeah, it's had quite, quite, a, quite a history of going back and forth from a theater to, to co other commercial uses. But in 1825, a, a gentleman by the name of Manuel Garcia and his family came to New York specifically to produce Italian, for, uh, uh, to, to produce Italian opera. That is uh, uh, Italian opera and opera in, in Italian. Now, why, why did it happen? Uh, living in New York City at this time is one of the most famous people from opera history, the librettist or the person who wrote the words, uh, Lorenzo da Ponte. And da Ponte wrote the words to three of the most popular operas ever written, uh, Don Giovanni uh, by Mozart, Così fan tutte, also by Mozart, and The Marriage of Figaro, also by Mozart. So it's just incredible that he ended up in New York. Da Ponte was an adventurer. And those other operas are from the late 1780s to the early 1790s, so this was decades later. This was decades later, but not that much later, right? Now, of course, Mozart died young at the age of 36, but Da Ponte didn't die till the uh, 1840s, and he was well into his 80s. But he is living in New York saying to people, we need to bring Italian opera here. So the uh, Garcia family came in. Now, the Garcia family... 
was was incredible. It was headed by a tenor, uh, Manuel Garcia. Could you imagine he sang the world premiere tenor role, the, the Count Almaviva, in the original Rossini production of The Barber of Seville in Rome in 1815. So he was a major singer and a major part of opera. And he came, he had a daughter, who's, uh, one daughter who, whose name was Maria. Later in life, she becomes one of the most famous divas in Europe, Maria Malabran, and dies very young, uh, uh, in Paris at the age of, or near Paris, uh, uh, in her 20s. But even by that point, she had really made a mark, mark in music. He had a much younger daughter who, uh, during the New York years, was very young and not singing. And she becomes Pauline Viadot, who lives well into her 80s and is one of the most famous opera singers of the 19th century. Finally, he had a son. The son, you know, he wasn't a very good singer. So what does he do? He becomes the best-known singing teacher in Europe during the 1900s. So he had quite a family. Wow. And they produced together in 1825. And I should also say uh, Garcia's wife was also a singer, his second wife. And they all, and except for the baby, uh, Pauline, they all had roles in the Barber Seville, the first opera sung in Italian in New York City. And ultimately, they do uh, at the Park Theater about 80 performances over the, the next few years. And in eight, that same year, in 1825, um, uh, didn't the New Orleans Opera come and do yeah, something? Yeah, and as the well? funny thing is, could you, the, in, in America by far, the city that had the most sophisticated opera uh, culture was New Orleans. And they actually used to send tours, companies from New Orleans uh, productions. Hmm. Uh, to uh, perform in New York and other northeastern cities. I, I think the first, uh, uh, the oldest opera house, the dedicated opera house in the country was in New Orleans. Um, when did New York get its first dedicated opera company? That would have been thanks to Lorenzo de Ponte, well into his 80s at that point, in 1833. And it stood Lower Manhattan. Of course, the center of New York City is Lower Manhattan. And it was on the northwest corner of Church Street and Leonard Street. And it was called the Italian Opera House. It had high hopes. And within two years, de Ponte had, had to sell it. But that was, the in New York City, the first dedicated building uh, created to produce opera. Mm. Um, one thing about the, uh, the Whitman Project, uh, there were a number of opera performances in the late 1840s that uh, his truly actually reviewed. Uh, uh, it's absolutely true. Uh, this year we're celebrating Walt Whitman's uh, 200th birthday, and when he was the editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, uh, 1846-1847, Whitman decided, you know what, I really like this Italian opera. So he reviewed productions of the Barber Seville. He attended and reviewed the very first Verdi opera ever produced in, um, in America, and that was Verdi's fourth opera, Il Lombardi, and he writes a review of it in the, in the uh, Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Hmm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Greg Trubiano and Michael Capasso. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? 
Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our program about opera in New York. Um, Michael Capasso, uh, General Director of the New York City Opera, what are some of the operas that the City Opera is going to be doing in the near future? Uh, we have plans for uh, an opera by Pietro Mascagni called Isabeau, uh, which Mascagni is, of course, most famous for having written Cavalleria Rusticana, but he wrote many other important operas. And part of City Opera's history has always been to rediscover important works. Um, and Isabeau essentially is Lady Godiva, the opera. Um, but it's a very beautiful opera that we performed in London last year uh, in a co-production with Opera Holland Park. Uh, we are also planning um, the, uh, a concert version of Benjamin Britten's Gloriana, which was written for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II and uh, is rarely performed, and in the leading role is the amazing uh, diva Ana Caterina Antonacci, who had a great success with this role in Spain a uh, year after. Uh, we have a LGBT concert also because we are, the, uh, we are committed to every June doing uh, an LGBT-themed work. We've already done um, Angels in America and uh, Brokeback Mountain, and last year, world premiere opera about Stonewall called Stonewall. Wow. And this year, it's the LGBT work is a concert uh, featuring um, Patricia Rossette, who is uh, not only a very, very important singer and, a, and an alum of the city opera, but also a leader in the LGBT community. Hmm. Well, I want to go back to the, uh, the history of opera in New York. Uh, uh, of course, we don't have a ton of time, but uh, uh, the pace of, of opera in New York speeds up in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, we had a very famous company that started in 1883, Yes, the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera and Real Estate Company was founded because opera prior to 1883 was being performed at what was called the Academy of Music. And the Academy of Music stood on Irving Place where the Con Edison building is now. And it was for rich people to go to the opera to see and be seen. And there were some performances too, but it wasn't about performances. Um, and then there were the Nouveau Riche in 1883. All of the new money, the robber barons, etc. Like Jay Gould. Right, <laughs> like Jay Gould. Uh, who couldn't get a box at the Academy of Music, and so they were unwelcome. So they decided that they would go way uptown where there was a square block of empty real estate on 30, uh, 39th to 40th Street between Broadway and 7th Avenue. Was there anything else up there at that point? It, well, no? I think there were things up there, but it was, I mean, it was the country. Mm. I mean, you know, uptown, uh, north of 23rd Street in those days, was not was a, a lot was going on. And they were able to buy this, you know, a square block and put up a building. And um, it was, um, everybody said it was just terrifically ugly. It, it was called the Yellow Brick Brewery. I have one of the yellow bricks on my desk as a paperweight, though. <laughs> um, and uh, when the Metropolitan Opera and Real Estate Company was formed, and it was essentially a co-op where um, the box holders owned the building, and they hired an, em an empresario who was engaged with the ability to exploit the building to his uh, profit throughout the year as long as he produced a certain amount of opera performances during the year as well. And it went on like that for quite some time. Well, one of the things that I found interesting about the Met is that you know, we all, uh, those of us who remember the Met on tour going across the country, 
Uh, but the men actually went on tour around the city. They just didn't perform in the Metropolitan Opera. No, House absolutely. There. They were they were they were throughout the city. They were in Brooklyn. They um, they later, you know, for and they went to Philadelphia. They were they were all over. And uh, they were and later on in the company's history, they had national tours. I mean, the Metropolitan Opera in in 1906 was in San Francisco during the earthquake. Uh, they performed. Carmen that night and went back to their hotel and then the earthquake came. Wow, wow. Did San Francisco have its own opera company in, that, in those days or not? Um, you know what? I'm Just not curious. sure. <laughs> I mean, good but, but, I, mean um, I don't really know, recall when the San Francisco um, Opera was formed. I, I don't believe it was as early as 1906. No. But speaking uh, in 1906, uh, an ancestor of uh, another very famous American with the same name opens up another opera company. Right. That would be Oscar Hammerstein. And Oscar Hammerstein uh, was a great lover of opera and a great empresario who put everything he had into being an opera empresario. And he built the Manhattan Opera House, which is still standing on 34th Street and 8th Avenue. And um, it is now used for different purposes, of course. Uh, he produced some extraordinary work there. Um, but and including the American premiere of Pelias and Melisande and things like that, a lot of French work in particular. And he was able to entice all of the major singers in the world to sing there with one single exception, and that was Enrico Caruso. And there was no singer more famous than Caruso at that time or really ever since, if you consider what his wide appeal was throughout the world. And Caruso was loyal to the Metropolitan Opera, and in the years 1906 to 1908 were considered the great opera house wars. And there's a, a Puck magazine uh, sketch of, of Hammerstein and um, Conried, who was the director of the Met, throwing... Um, figurines of famous singers at each other trying to, you know, uh, trying to overcome one another. Mm. And ultimately, the war was ended when Otto Kahn, who was the great philanthropist and essentially, the, uh, and he was the chair of the board of the Metropolitan Opera, personally gave Hammerstein $1.2 million to stay out of the opera business in New York for 10 years. And, wow. Michael, not only in New York, but also well, in uh, Boston, Boston and, and, and Philadelphia. Could, yes. you, could you imagine $1.2 in, in those? Wow. Just to, Jeff, just to add one more thing about the uh, Metropolitan Opera touring to Brooklyn, the Metropolitan Opera performed both at the uh, Brooklyn's Academy of Music, the original one in Brooklyn Heights on Montague Street near Clinton, and it also performed uh, after it, the fire destroyed it in 1903 when it reopened near Flatbush Avenue and Lafayette Avenue uh, in, in uh, 1908. But it also went to other theaters in, in Brooklyn, including a theater in Williamsburg on Bedford Avenue and South 9th Street called the Amphion Theater, where they did an entire ring cycle. And I'm pretty sure that they brought the ring cycle to Williamsburg because of the German population there. Mm -hmm. And they, and they uh, would have... Uh, uh, they they would have a ready-made audience for it. Well, and and, uh, and when it op when the new Brooklyn Academy of Music opened, and it still stands as the Opera House in Brooklyn, it it opened with a production of Faust with Caruso and the great American diva Geraldine Farrar, and it marked the first performance by the new administration that had been brought in by Otto Kahn, which was the general manager, Giulio Gatti-Cazazza, and um, the music director, Arturo Toscanini. And it was premiered with which singers in 1980? Caruso and Ferrar. Yeah. Yes. It was a very... God, to have been at that, that would have been an amazing experience. Not that to have been at any of these performances we're talking <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> um, well, Michael, let's go to, to New York's other well-known opera company, the New York City Opera. How did it get started? When, when, when did it start? And who, and, and, and who was instrumental in bringing it up, in, in starting it? It, it began um, as an idea of uh, Mayor LaGuardia. In 1943, the company was incorporated, and it began performing in 1944 at uh, what was a Masonic temple on 56th Street, which is now uh, 55th and 56th, um, which is now called City Center. Oh, that was a Masonic uh, temple originally? It was a Masonic temple oh, okay. originally, yes. And, um, 
and it was a, the inspiration of Mayor LaGuardia, and a group of philanthropists came together, and they hired an empresario conductor, a uh, Hungarian named Laszlo Halas. And Laszlo Halas began... Uh, in 1944 with the production of Tosca. And the idea behind the company was that it was the people's opera. So it was popularly priced. Um, it featured a mostly repertoire that would appeal to the enormous immigrant population at the time, which was predominantly Italian or German Jewish. So the majority of the repertoire yeah, either appealed to Italian immigrants or people of Italian descent, or there was you know, a lot of German repertoire, a lot of operetta, and things of that sort. And they focused also um, differently than the Metropolitan Opera by that time. The Met had a long history of uh, in the Gattikazatsa time of doing American opera, but then City Opera really uh, put their stamp on it. And they were also incredibly diverse. They were the first company to engage a, an African-American composer. They were the first company years before Marian Anderson to put African-Americans in leading roles on stage. Um, very, very important to the diversity and the culture of New York City. Now, how, how long did they perform at City Center for? When did, uh, un, they until perform, the State Theater was, was until the state Until they moved to Lincoln Center, much to the chagrin of, of Rudolph Bing, who didn't want them as a neighbor. And, um, and you know, they moved to the State Theater, what was then the State Theater, uh, and it was, a, it was a, a beautiful venue for them, but it was a big step up. And um, one thing that has been consistent throughout the entire history of the New York City Opera is they've never had enough money. And I can tell you that that's the case today, too. <laughs> but you were really great in helping to uh, pull the City Opera up out of the depths of the not-good financial situation back to, to, back to pr putting productions on. Yes. In, in 2013, I read in the New York Times, along with everybody else, that City Opera had filed for Chapter 11 protection. And I was uh, shocked and horrified. I, I was raised on Long Island, and I used to take the train in and go to see you know, hundreds of performances uh, at City Opera since I was a kid. I went to the Met, too, but you know, I could afford to go to City Opera, which was a big difference. And they did amazing, amazing things, and they did repertoire that you couldn't see anywhere else. You couldn't see the Boito Mephistofele or, or, or De Todestat and things like that, where the amazing production of the Massenet Manon. It wasn't being done at the Met at that time. They really carved out a niche for themselves. And so um, I called a friend of mine who was a lawyer and said, what's the story with bankruptcy and non-for-profits? And he said, I don't know, but talk to Gerard, which he regrets because now this, our general counsel has spent you know, hundreds and hundreds of pro bono hours helping us. And we went through the process of restructuring the company, which took two years, but ultimately we won the asset and we, uh, we came out in January of 2016. And to pay respect to the history of the company, we opened with Tosca again. Oh, that's great. Which happens to be one of my favorite operas. <laughs> it's my desert island opera, for sure. <laughs> um, and, of course, around the same time that uh, uh, both opera companies moved to Lincoln Center, uh, there's the tale, uh, kind of the sordid story of what was going to happen to the old Met, as was known, the original opera house. Um, what happened to the old Met, and why is it not here anymore? It's, it, it's not here because it, was, it, it sat, by this time, by the 60s, 39th and Broadway was a very valuable parcel of real estate. And the Met uh, needed, to, uh, needed the money, the income from, from the, the property. And there were people who were fighting to preserve the house because of its tradition and, and, and everything that it was. And, and the landmarks preservation was just coming in because there had been the fight over the demolition of Penn Station. And, um, the commission was formed in 65. 65, and, and, and this was all going on at the same time. And ultimately, the Met couldn't be saved. And there is a, uh, there's some amazing pictures of the demolition. And there's, there's one of uh, Leach Albanese you know, um, in the, the great, great soprano in the rubble of the, of the old house. And it was, had it been saved, it would likely be used today much in the way the Palais Garnier is used in Paris, where which is this, you know, and they have a new 
totally modern opera house, and then they have the older, you know, elegant opera house. Well, thank goodness that was not demolished. Yeah. <laughs> that would be talk about the, I mean, the crime. Yes. You know, it would be all in the uh, order of Penn Station. Um, in the short time we have left, I just want to ask one additional question. Uh, for a while, there was actually opera performed in a stadium in New York, wasn't there? Yes, Lewishon Stadium is uh, was on the campus of City College. Uh, where the polo grounds were and, and, you know, lots of activity was up there. And um, many, many performances of opera happened there uh, by the Metropolitan Opera, by the New York City Opera. There were concerts by the Philharmonic. Incredibly famous singers sang there. Um, and it, it, it's an important place that uh, is, uh, again, has been since demolished. You can see it in its partial demolition in the movie Serpico. There's ah, a scene that yeah. takes place in the partially demolished stadium. Hmm. Well, gentlemen, Michael and Greg, we have not had nearly enough time to talk about uh, the history of this great art form in our great city. But I want to thank you for uh, being able to, to illuminate us a little bit to the, the history of, of opera in New York. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank Mike, you for having us. Uh, the guests on the first part of my show have been Michael Capasso, who's general director of the New York City Opera. And also Greg Truppiano, who is the founder and artistic director of the Walt Whitman Project and who also is the director of artistic administration at Sarasota Opera in Florida. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment. And when we come back, we have a special guest who's going to talk about a very fascinating take on opera in New York and what his company does to bring it to life in this city. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back in our special program about opera in New York. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka. Tom specializes in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods and some great things about the city. Uh, even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But fear not, listeners, there's a really good one out there. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com competitor to this illustrious station, and also on podcast. You can like us on Facebook. We're Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. You can follow me on Instagram. My handle is JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me. That's Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.NYC. One other note before we get to our next guest even though this is not a show about real estate in New York, when I'm not hosting this show, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. 
If you'd like to see how I can help you with our real estate needs, you can with your real estate needs, pardon me, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. We have a special guest on the second half of Rediscovering New York, Eric Einhorn. Eric is the co-founding general and artistic director of Onsite Opera. It's a company devoted to presenting site-specific immersive opera in some of New York City's most exciting and unusual spaces, and I've had the pleasure of being in a number of performances. Eric's complete list of engagements and accomplishments in the opera world are far too long for me to go through in detail and still have enough time for him to chat about the subject matter this evening, but uh, I'll mention a few of them. They include the Glimmerglass Festival, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and indeed the Metropolitan Opera here in New York. Uh, Eric has served on the directing staff since 2005. Future engagements will include a return to the Wolf Trap Operas as well as the Caramore International Music Festival. Uh, Eric's direction of Dialogues of the Carmelites for Austin Opera was awarded Best Opera at the Austin Critics Table Awards in addition to garnering him a nomination for Best Director. Other recent projects include his Lyric Opera of Chicago debut staging Hansel and Gretel and his subsequent return to the company to direct E. Puritani and the world premiere of The Property, which is a klezmer opera for which he's also an adapter. Eric is the former resident stage director for The Great Music for a great city at the City University of New York Graduate Center. He's the past winner of the National Opera Association Scholarly Paper Competition and is a frequent contributor of book reviews to the National Opera Association's Opera Journal. Eric holds a Bachelor of Music degree in Opera, Directing, and Voice Performance from the Oberlin Conservatory of Music. It's my pleasure to welcome Eric Einhorn to Rediscovering New York. Eric, welcome. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, I want to ask you a question about your background. Did you go to Oberlin specifically with, with opera in mind, or did you side, decide to produce it more uh, dramatically after you got there? I went there with the sole purpose of becoming an opera singer. Huh. I, uh, I had the great pleasure as a high school student to have an incredible voice teacher. All I wanted to do was be a really great musical theater performer. That's all I wanted to do. But I showed up to this guy's studio, and he was a former director of the Vienna Boys Choir, somehow found his way to suburban New Jersey to teach voice lessons. Uh, and I walked in, and he said, I will teach you how to sing, but I'm not going to teach you how to sing musical theater. I'll teach you how to sing classical music, or you can leave. So I stuck around, uh, and he opened my eyes to opera in a way that I could never have imagined. That in conjunction with... Uh, some incredible music teachers in public school. Uh, I'm just the product of, of great music education and, and music-loving parents who supported their kids' crazy habits of going to the opera and listening to classical music. Um, so I went to Oberlin to be an opera singer and there kind of discovered stage directing and had the great opportunity to pursue both. So you, you studied singing and stage, uh, and stage directed, uh, direction in Oberlin. I did. Um, when you got out into the world, uh, did you uh, pursue a dual track uh, career in singing as well as stage direction? I tried because I wasn't sure what I wanted to be when I grew up and uh, ended up as my first performance in New York City uh, to tie it back to the first half of the show. Ended up at City Center where, where New York City Opera began, but performing for the New York Gilbert and Sullivan Players. Uh, in their chorus for the gondoliers <laughs> and oh, wow. uh, had one of those moments where I just realized it was a it was a great opportunity a great cast a great company to work for but realized that performing just wasn't for me um, and I had some some directing opportunities at the same time and and just decided that I had to pick one based on the the amount of time and effort it took for either so threw myself into directing when did you direct your first opera in high school, actually. Wow, which one was that? <laughs> it was a 45... We're all smiling here in the studio. Right? <laughs> it was a 45-minute adaptation of Carmen. Uh, when I decided I wanted to be an opera singer in, in high school, that that's the degree I wanted to pursue, there, there weren't really any opportunities for me to, to test it out, to make sure that's what I wanted to do. Uh, so being a very ambitious high school student with some friends of mine put together essentially an opera club at my school and ended up doing this little Carmen adaptation, and there was nobody there to direct. Um, I sang Escamillo, the Toreador, and, uh, but there was no one left over to direct, so I just thought, well, I'll do it, fine. How, how hard could it be? Are you a baritone in singing? Yes, uh, okay. yeah, and so it was, it was a, quite an experience. I learned a lot. Um, luckily, I've grown as a director from then, but, uh, but that was the first time, and didn't really come back to it until I was in college when I 
dove back into it as a legitimate art form, uh, part of the art form that I really fell in love with. Well, I, I fell in love with opera. Uh, we were talking in the green room before uh, the show tonight. Uh, I saw uh, La Boheme and Tosca the same year. I was 13 at the Amato Opera. And I went to uh, a New York City public high school in the 70s, and even though I had an amazing education and, and fantastic teachers, I was kind of a little bit of a lone island, you know. Not a lot of students were uh, listening to opera, but uh, thankfully the chairman of the music department, uh, Jerry Goldstein, sort of took me under his wing and loaned me a lot of, uh, a lot of great music. Uh, before we talk about on-site opera, uh, I want to ask you something about uh, work throughout your career. Um, I'm curious as to what you would consider a few of your most interesting and maybe unusual projects before you took them, you took on on-site opera. Sure, we, you've you mentioned them mentioned many of them in the in the great introduction you gave me. So thank you for that. Uh, I think the the first time that I had an experience as a director that was really transformative was um, directing Dialogues of the Carmelites in Austin, the production that you referenced earlier. It was just one of those productions with an amazing cast, a very bare bones physical production, limited sets and costumes and lights, that uh, forced me as a director to really dig into the piece in a different way. I had nothing to fall back on in terms of trappings of spectacle. And it was an amazing cast, a great, great bunch of people, great artist, great conductor, and everything just aligned in such a way that made for a, a significantly impactful performance. Um, a couple other things that are a little a little more off the beaten path. You mentioned uh, a piece called The Property that I uh, helped co-adapt and uh, directed for Lyric Opera Chicago's Lyric Unlimited program, um, which was a klezmer opera written by Vladimir Hulitz and Stephanie Fleischman. So but lots of clarinet playing. Lots of clarinet. We had an accordion. We had uh, a, a bass player. Um, really great, a great piece. But what was interesting about it is that it was adapted from, a, from an Israeli graphic novel. And it is this great story. The, the kind of mandate of the project was to create a new opera based on the idea of a, of a second-generation Holocaust survivor story. So not the survivors themselves, but the children and grandchildren of survivors. So it's a really interesting examination of, of that and uh, a really wonderful chamber piece that I'd love to see, to see done again. Um, but uh, some projects that led me closer to on-site opera were a bunch of projects I did for the Pacific Symphony out in Orange County, California, that they started producing opera in their symphony season as a result of uh, Opera Pacific, which was a, a very wonderful storied company out in Orange County for many years. They, um, they disbanded, and the Pacific Symphony started doing really fully produced, staged concerts of, of opera. So I was brought in and trying to figure out how we could make these full theatrical events with, the, with this giant orchestra on stage um, to, create the, to, create, to create these wonderful experiences um, that still were, were viable within the symphony season. So it, it stretched me creatively to figure out how to make an opera without making a full production, yet making it feel like a full production um, with an incredibly supportive producing organization. Well, speaking of operas that may or may not be full productions, uh, when we come back from our short break, we're going to ask you about the genesis of on-site opera and talk about some of the productions uh, in your company here. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. 
talkingalternative.com. Rediscovering New York in our special show about opera in New York. It's past and is present. Uh, Eric, tell us about the genesis of on-site opera. How long had you been directing opera before you, you, you had a dream of, of founding an opera company? So I've been working for about five or six years uh, in regional opera. And I was really looking for something that could keep me a little closer to home. I had a young family, and I... I was looking for something that would take me away from the traditional proscenium theater, the, the, the kind of opera that most of us know. Go to the opera house, you see a full production. I was looking for something a little different to see what else was possible for me as a director. That, I was, that kind of work I was finding a little less satisfying than I, maybe it should have been, that I wanted it to be. So um, set out and started to think about what, what changes could I make to the, to the opera producing model uh, that could make it viable for me. And I, I was seeing a, a lot of the work that other regional opera companies were doing on a second stage kind of thing in, in producing in non-traditional venues or doing some site-specific productions. And I, th- and I wondered if that kind of performance could be done as the sole model for a company. There, were, there wasn't a precedent for that in the U.S. There were some companies in, in Europe, U.K. especially, that were doing that, but nothing in the U.S. So I w- was questioning whether it was viable. And so with a, um, with a colleague of mine who I'd met at the Metropolitan Opera named Jessica Kiger, we set out in late 2011 to, to test it out. And a good, an, another way of, of terming on-site opera is really on-location opera. It's actually taking a place that you would not assume or think of an opera being produced. Mm-hmm. could be uh, uh, an airport hangar or a, a, a house or, or something else that, that, that's uh, not traditional. Right. We, take, we, we pair operas with spaces much like you would scout a film location and looking for spaces that are intrinsically linked to the story that we're telling. Mm-hmm. How did you start the company? How did you, aside from having your, your, your partner in, in forming it, what did you have to do to get this going? It was uh, much like any new small business. It was finding some investors, mostly friends and family, uh, and some personal funding to just, and calling in a lot of favors to colleagues and singers that I knew. And we started very small. We, we started with a 12-minute Shostakovich miniature opera called The, the Tale of the Silly Baby Mouse. Um, that we did at the Bronx Zoo as part of a family performance series, which I became part of because of a friend of mine had connected me to the director of programming at the Bronx Zoo, who essentially was looking to fill some space in this larger festival. So a lot of things lined up to help work it out and keep the cost low. And it was really a, a test for us to see if anybody wanted to see it, if, we, if I could be a producer uh, on What a sight scale. to do an opera in a zoo. It was pretty amazing. And we have we've have yet to return to a space so adjacent to a camel enclosure or elephants, but we're getting there. How long did it take you from the time you started uh, putting, uh, the founding the company in the motion to actually you, you, you having the company in it and it getting off the ground? From original conversation to the first performance of, of the show at the zoo, probably 10 months. Wow. That, does, that doesn't seem like that long a time. A it, it's not, but, and that's because the, the piece we were producing was very manageable, very small, uh, and only in subsequent years did we start to grow what we did. Before we talk about some of the specific operas and performances, I want to ask you a question about um, how on-site opera fits into to opera in general in the city. Um, is there any particular way you would describe the lineage of on-site opera's place in opera companies in the city? Absolutely. On-site opera, I think, is a prime example of that idea of that whatever is successful today stands on the shoulders of giants. Um, the, the rich history of opera in this city, um, from the Met, of course, as the bedrock of everything, but certainly uh, New York City opera, um, from its origins at City Center to the work it's doing today in uh, in bringing new kinds of productions, um, incredibly diverse casts and theatrical experiences to audiences, um, 
helped inform what opera can be in this city. And then you look at companies uh, like Gotham Chamber Opera, which is unfortunately no longer uh, in existence, but that took what audiences wanted to uh, see and the kinds of repertoire and the kinds of performance uh, and, and focusing in a very different way that created space for what's now dubbed as the indie opera scene, which on-site opera, this fabric of smaller opera companies functioning uh, all throughout the five boroughs. Some of the, the productions you put on are for new operas, including those that you either commission or you're the company to actually premiere them. Some are for existing operas, and some are for variations of, of, of existing operas that you've done. What are the operas that you've commissioned on-site opera? We've commissioned three operas to date. Uh, our first one was a piece called Rhoda and the Fossil Hunt by John Musto. It was commissioned for the Museum of Natural History at the, uh, in the Hall of Dinosaurs with the T-Rex and the Apatosaurus. That um, was co-commissioned with Lyric Opera Chicago and Pittsburgh Opera. And that was a 25-minute opera for families that's, uh, that's had a great life. It, we played it at the museum. Uh, an expanded version of it played in Chicago to several thousand schoolchildren over the course of a month's tour. Uh, and it's, there's lots of interest in, in a future life for it. It's a really heartwarming piece. We then continued our museum commissioning uh, uh, pattern with a piece called Murasaki's Moon. Which I had the pleasure of seeing. It was, it was great opera. I loved it. Thank um, you. Uh, that was for the Metropolitan Museum of Art in conjunction with an exhibit they were, they were doing on the Tale of Genji, which is the medieval Japanese uh, novel, the world's first, many say, written by a woman at court. And most recently... And that's like 900 years old. It was written, wasn't it, in the 12th century? It was, yes. yes. And, but it's like, like so many things uh, in, in arts and literature and music, you realize the timeless connections to all of these things. And most recently, we, we have commissioned a piece called Stay uh, by John Glover and Kelly Rourke, which even for us is um, envelope pushing. It's, a, it's an hour-long eight-person acapella ghost story commissioned for a house on Governor's Island. In full disclosure, I was at the workshop for that uh, a week ago. That was really an extraordinary experience. Thank you. It, uh, it was a lot of fun. And, and so we, we are continuing to experiment with what we can do as a company to commission these new pieces and bring site-specific opera to more people. What are some of the variations of operas that you've done? So the first large-scale project that the company took on was a multi-year Figaro trilogy. Now, Figaro is a character that opera fans know very well from the Rossini Barber Seville, from the Mozart Marriage of Figaro. But I wanted to see if we could skew that a little bit and, and experiment with those pieces in the Figaro trilogy written by composers that you haven't heard of. So we started with the Paisiello Barber Seville, which actually was written before Rossini wrote his, and it was quite a fiasco when Rossini wrote his version. We had, there were people booing the premiere performance, and it's a, it's a wonderfully charming, much more faithful to the original Beaumarchais play uh, version of the, of the opera, so that we did that in year one of the trilogy. That was f- followed by... A Marriage of Figaro, written by Marcos Portugal, who was a Portuguese composer uh, in the 18th century living and, and writing in Italy. He actually wrote the opera about 13 years after Mozart. And we closed the trilogy with the uh, Mio Mercupalba, The Guilty Mother, which is an almost verbatim setting of the third Beaumarchais play. Uh, most people know that play through John Carigliano's Ghost of Versailles. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, one thing I'm wondering is how does a production get in your planning? Do you pick the opera first or the site? <laughs> how, do, how do you, how is opera born at Arnside Opera? It's a little bit chicken or the egg sometimes. A lot of the times we will, we'll have pieces that we want to do that between myself and Jeff McDonald, our music director, there, there's a long list of things we'd love to do and the types of places we'd like to do it. And we, just depending on how, how things develop, we pursue things um, based on season planning and, and, and availability. But in recent years, it's, it's changed a little bit. And as more people know who we are, see our work, and hear about us, venues reach out to us to say, we'd love to have you come here and do something. So it gives us an opportunity to look at a space and be inspired by the three-dimensionality of it and figure out what opera can work in there. What are some of the other productions you've done? And also, two-part question, where did you do them? And how did, and how, and how did that relate to... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the actual work. So let's see. We did uh, the... Uh, Murasaki's Moon, by the way, that actually was done in uh, the Astor Court, which is the center of Asian art at the Metropolitan yes. Museum of Art. So that was very, you know, uh, apropos. For yes. That, for and I opera. should say the that opera was written by Michi Wianco and Deborah Brevoort. I'd like to give the authors their credit for sure. So other things that we've done, uh, our second show we did was a, a real piece of, of New York opera history, a piece by Gershwin called Blue Monday, which was written a decade or so before Porgy and Bess. It was kind of his first experiment in opera, uh, a tiny little sketch of, of a piece. Gershwin meets Pagliacci in both structure and, uh, and storyline. And it's a wonderful little piece we did at the Cotton Club up in Harlem, which oh, of course wow. is not the original Cotton Club, but it's the closest we have. Uh, and it was a really wonderful experience. Uh, we used their house orchestra and gave it a, a really great, fun production. Oh, so the Cotton Club's house orchestra was uh, the orchestra for mm-hmm. the opera. That's great. Yeah. That's great. We've also done uh, a piece called Morning Star by Ricky and Gordon. It was uh, the New York premiere of that at the Eldridge Street Synagogue down on the Lower East Side, which told the story of uh, a family affected by the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which was really quite a powerful event, and we did it around the anniversary of the fire. Uh, We also did an adaptation of Mozart's Finta Giardiniera, The Secret Gardener, that we co-commissioned with the Atlanta Opera that we did here um, at a community garden uh, on the Upper West Side, and we took it to the Atlanta Botanical Garden immediately thereafter. What are some of the upcoming productions that you have uh, for, for the opera? We have a lot on our plate. We are in a great season of expansion. We, as you, as you mentioned, we just did these workshop performances of Stay out on Governor's Island. At the end of October, we'll be performing Britain's The Turn of the Screw at Wave Hill up in the Bronx. Is that going to be the complete opera, or are you varying the music at all? That'll be the complete opera that will take audiences uh, through four different locations on the grounds of, of this beautiful, sprawling estate in the Bronx. If you haven't been there, I highly recommend it. It's gorgeous. So that's in October. In December... We are, we are reviving a production of Minotti's Amal and the Night Visitors, which is a wonderful Christmas opera that was shown on TV for many years, written for television, and we did a production last year that uh, was really impactful for the community. It was, it was a modern retelling of the piece that we set in a soup kitchen uh, in Chelsea, and we paired with a supportive housing organization to create a chorus of community members from the, uh, who were formerly homeless, and and it was just one of those experiences that audiences really took to. That was a magical community experience that that showed truly what the power of opera could be. Uh, so we're going to bring that back. Uh, to the same Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen on 29th Street in December. So Amal and the, the Night Visitors, the past was at the Church of the Holy Apostles, and also it's going to be uh, the new... The Correct, new, yes. Okay. Um, and you're doing your first musical in January. We are. We're keeping, the details, we're keeping the details a little bit under wraps, um, but it will be a, a musical that has a lot to do with food and a, a pretty pretty fair amount to do with opera. It's, it's linked to some very well-known operatic material, uh, but it is, it is a full-blooded musical that has not been in New York for several decades, so we're excited to bring it back. Uh, we'll have details about that uh, in the coming months. Can you share what the name of it is yet or not yet? Not yet. <laughs> okay. Got to check, well, gotta check gotta us out check on our, online and, and uh, join our mailing list to figure it out. How can people check you out online? You can visit our website, which is osopera.org. You can join our mailing list there. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, um, and follow us on all those things. This is a good opportunity to talk about on-site opera's app, which I actually have, but I don't make full use of. Do you want to talk about your app? Absolutely. So something that we've been, we've been trying to do over, since the company's inception is, is explore technology as it can be used to heighten the the performance experience, to add to the work that we do, and especially insofar as we are a transient company, how can it help us be a little more nimble? And several years ago, when Google Glass was the hot new technology that Google was rolling out very slowly, uh, we... Remember that? (laughs) Exactly. It went away pretty quickly, but we partnered with uh, a few organizations to, to work with the beta testing community of Glass to create a super title app 
the translations of the opera directly to your glasses because as a company that performs immersively and in 360 degrees, the opportunity to project English translations on one place like you would in an opera house doesn't exist. So it was, uh, it was a pretty good experiment. We had some good feedback, but then Google pulled the technology and uh, we, we went on producing. And then about a year ago, uh, we did this piece, Morning Star, which I mentioned, in a synagogue that had no surface on which we could project titles. And it was a very dense libretto, and we had some audience feedback that was essentially, it was a great opera, I could sort of follow the story, but translations or, or the text would be really helpful. So I dug into what was out there, and there was a company called Instant Encore, which for years has been doing apps for performing arts organizations. They had launched a new part of that program, which was a essentially a mobile titling module and we investigated it we we had some conversations and we we beta tested the the experience and lo and behold a few months later we have our very own on-site opera app which audiences can use at all of our performances now that has not only the English text, if it's sung in English, but we're experimenting with other languages. We are, uh, for Amal, this coming December, we are adding Spanish for Morisaki's Moon because of the subject matter. We did the English text and also Japanese text. So we are slowly exploring what this app can do and how it can bring audiences closer. Well, it was a very, you know, uh, being... Uh a frequent goer to the Met, uh, Met titles is also is really good. It, it provides personal, uh, your own personal screen, and I do have the app uh, for on-site opera, and it was really good to have that during Murasaki's Moon. It, Excellent. You know, even though it was in English, it it really made understanding the opera and knowing what was being said really really good. Um, people want to find out about on-site opera. Your website is osopera.org. Great. Well, my second guest tonight, the guest on my second part of the show, the show about opera in New York, has been Eric Einhorn. He's the co-founding general and artistic director of Onsite Opera. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, we've just finished this journey in New York opera, past and present. We did not have enough time to look at it in all of its detail, but I'm grateful that we had an hour together. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook. It's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, original I know. You can also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more note before we sign off, when I'm not hosting the show, I'm a real estate agent at Halstead, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer tonight is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. 
Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 